Well, to begin the new year, to look here towards the end of the year and into the new year, uh, before we start a new book of the Bible, um, prayerfully considered what to preach from and landed on the book of Philemon. So if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Philemon, and it's right in between Titus and Hebrews, Titus, and all the T's are together just to help you, locating books of the Bible. And you have Philemon. And here we see Christ through Paul and the epistle to Philemon, or Philemon, if you will. I'll pronounce it Philemon. The Apostle Paul writes... By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother." Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. Since I'm such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I've begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this very reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me, even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
Our Heavenly Father, we ask now, O Lord, by your grace, that you would please minister to us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, through the preaching this hour, I ask and am in desperate need for you to minister to your people through me. Enable me, Lord, by your power, your spirit, to communicate the divine truths of Scripture here in this letter to Philemon. Lord, I specifically pray for your church that they would be reminded of the glorious reconciliation that has been made to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And for anyone here who is outside of the saving grace and the finished work of Jesus Christ, I pray that today it would be revealed that you came and you paid the price for them, that you would open their eyes, grant them the ability to repent and turn to you, cause them, Lord, we pray, to be born of the Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's a short letter, powerful punch. If we were to summarize the book of Philemon with one word, it would be this, reconciliation. Bringing God to man and men to God and men to one another under the evidences of God's goodness, His grace. Now, this letter, unlike the other epistles of Paul, which were meant to be read publicly, was not intended to be read in that way, at least in Paul's eyes at this time. This is a personal letter to a personal friend about a personal problem. And it's doubtful that Paul knew that it would be read, studied, and preached by millions over the following two millennia. But it was, nevertheless, a letter written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in it, we we gain great insight into the heart of Paul, a man who was transformed by the grace of God, a man who was an enemy of God, and a man who God saw as an enemy. A man who hated Christ, a man who hated Christians, a man who was persecuting Christians, a man who had documents in hand on the road to Damascus to arrest anyone and confine anyone who was of the way. Anyone who was professing Jesus Christ, he would have arrested and he would have actually murdered. Those who stoned Stephen, they threw their coats at the feet of one named Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul. This man's heart was transformed. This man's heart and mind were radically transformed. He now has the mind of Christ. He now has the heart of Christ. He now understands the reconciliation that's been made on his behalf. He writes this letter. The recipient of the letter is one named Philemon, a godly man who lived in Colossae, a gracious and affectionate man. He had a slave by the name of Onesimus, and Onesimus forsook his master. Onesimus stole from his master, and fearing the wrath of his master, he flees. He runs to Rome, thinking perhaps he can hide out among the masses. But he was the property of another. We're the property of another. 
all of mankind is the property of God, period. And we have done everything to malign his name rather than to honor his name. So, Onesimus is not like any one of us. Running from God, he runs from his master, fearing the wrath of his master. He's on the run. Just as you, if you're a Christian, were once on the run. If you're not a Christian today, you're on the run. And perhaps God has sovereignly chosen to bring you to this time and to this place to hear the good news of his son, Jesus Christ. Because as this man ran from his master, God, within his sovereign framework, led him to a man by the name of Paul, the apostle. Paul at this time was chained to a Roman guard. And through the ministry of Paul, Onesimus comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ while he's on the run. He discovers, if he didn't already know, we don't know for sure, that Onesimus, this runaway slave, ran away from Philemon, who was a friend of Paul's. His dear friend Philemon. Paul knows his master. So Paul, in writing this letter, puts it in the hand of Onesimus, sends him back to his rightful owner, and he was probably at this time accompanied by another one by the name of Tychicus, and Tychicus probably had in his hand at this time a letter to the church at Colossae, what we know as the book of Colossians. But this letter, this personal letter, this postcard, if you will, was in the hand of Onesimus to be delivered personally to Philemon. Here now, Paul is going to go to bat for this slave who has forsaken his master, who stole from his master. His master was a faithful man, a very benevolent man, a gracious man, an affectionate man. Notice how Paul begins his letter. We're going to kind of skim over the verses here and we will focus in on verses 17 to 25 this morning. You could probably do three or four sermons on this little epistle, but I wanted to kind of cover the whole thing today if possible. In verses 1 through 3, Paul begins by saying, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy our brother. Paul usually begins his letters by stating the fact that it's from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here he refers to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus has put me in this position. Under the sovereign will and hand of God, here I am chained in Rome. So it's not as though he's whining. It's not as though he's complaining. He's simply explaining. I'm a prisoner, not of Caesar, but of Jesus Christ, my sovereign Lord the ruler of the universe, the ruler of my life, the ruler of my heart. You see, we we say we believe in the sovereignty of God. If you're a Christian, you believe in the sovereignty of God, amen? Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Do you believe in the sovereignty of God in all things? Do you believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation? If we believe in the sovereignty of God, and we're in the midst of difficult situations, if I'm winding, if I'm whining, if I'm sniveling, then I don't see myself as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We need to be reminded of these things. We need to build one another up, reminding ourselves who is in control. So here is Paul, placed here in chains according to the sovereign will and purpose of God. You see, he's the one that directs our lives. He's the one that orchestrates the situations and circumstances of our lives. Anything that comes our way, God's in control. See, Paul's an upbeat minister of the gospel. He's an upbeat prisoner of the gospel. Used so mightily by God. Wherever he was, even, in the, even when he suffered persecution, which perhaps seemed on the surface to, to be of a political nature, Paul knew in the core of his being the hand behind it all. It was the sovereignty of God. So he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now he knows his life's going to come to an end. He refers this to himself in verse 9 as Paul the aged. But here he is with Timothy, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. So as he's growing in age here, he's preparing people to accept the ministry of his understudy, Timothy. He names him. He goes on and he greets not only Philemon, but Aphia, our sister, verse 2. In Archippus, our fellow soldier. Now, it's most likely here that Aphia was the husband of Philemon and Archippus was their son. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He greets them and notice verse 2, he also greets the church that meets where? In their home. This, build, this is a building, this isn't a church. Now we say we're going to the church, right? We're going to church. True. Why? Well, we're going to a building where the saints meet. You're the church. If you're in Christ, you're the church. You're the saints. You're God's people. We are the body of Christ. This is a family dedicated to the Lord. Not only ministering to their own families, but opening up their homes to minister to other saints. Ministering, fellowshipping, discipling. This, my friends, is preventive medicine for the soul. Preventative medicine for the soul. It's much easier, to, much easier to keep people well than it is to heal the sick. That's Paul's purpose in praying, verses 4 to 6. I thank God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear what? Of your love. I hear of your faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. Thus the reason I pray. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. And we'll get to his appeal in the moment. So, when do most of us pray? Most of us begin to intercede on behalf of others when the wheels of their life are falling off the wagon, right? You get the prayer request, the emergency, red-flagged prayer request. So-and-so's life is upside down. So-and-so is sick or so-and-so is going through such and such. Therefore, pray for them. That's great. But I would like to suggest a much better way of praying. And that is to pray proactively instead of always reactively. 
as Paul did. I make mention of you in my prayers always. Praying that you will that your children will grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that you will have wisdom as the head of the home to raise these children, to lead your wife in the truth, and for wives to be submissive to their husbands and minister to the younger ladies. Pray according to Scripture. So here's the family that Paul sends this thief, this slave who's on the run, he sends it back to this family. A faithful family. You know, a lot of young men will oftentimes approach me and say, you know, I just wish I was in the ministry full time. First of all, you are in the ministry full time if you're saved. And what you mean, I don't think you really know what you mean. But here's the thing. It's because you're in the ministry, minister where you're at. Minister in your homes. That's your ministry. Fathers, you bear the load of leadership. You bear the load of responsibility in raising your wife, raising your children, washing your family in the word of God. That's your role. That's your responsibility. If your children don't like the gospel, if they're not receptive to the gospel, if they hate the gospel, don't stop. Pray without ceasing. You have an evangelistic work to do there. God promises the overflowing, sanctifying work of His Word and the covenantal promises of God of old that the overflow of of God's blessing and sanctifying work in our lives and through our, our lives flow out and they touch our families. Pray without ceasing. Preach the gospel. Minister where you're at. But I'm 22, man, and I don't have a family. Minister to your little brother. Minister to your little sister. Take them to the park. Share with them the glorious truths God is teaching you. That's ministry. We're all in the ministry, amen? Now, the theme for today is reconciliation. That's our theme. That's our focus. Paul is speaking about the truth of substitutionary satisfaction. This is a glorious picture of the gospel. God reconciling sinners to himself. John Calvin said that the gospel is the embassy of reconciliation between God and man. 2 Corinthians 5, from which Gordon read just moments ago, is a message of reconciliation. It's been entrusted to Paul and his colleagues. Verse 18, now all these things are from... God, who reconciled him, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Paul's reminding his readers that God has not only reconciled us to himself, but has also committed to us a ministry of reconciliation. Carriers, bearers of the good news. This is what compels me to preach, beloved. To preach the gospel. I don't care if people like me. 
I don't, I'm not here to make friends, although many of you are my friends. I'm here to herald the truth of eternal almighty God for the sake of sinners that are dead in trespasses and sins, that by God's grace, he may bring them to life. Granting them the, the special revelation of divine truth. Causing them to grow and realize that they are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, that they were toned for at the cross of Jesus Christ, and that they can thereby grow and are enabled to live a life receptive of grace, and that therefore can deposit grace in the glorious message, message of reconciliation. The Apostle John wrote that we ought to love one another, not claiming to love God whom we cannot see if we fail to love the brother or sister that's standing before us. 2 Corinthians 5.16, what we see here is that as Christians, we see people in a different light, specifically those who are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, therefore from now on we recognize one another, we recognize one another according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. We recognize no one according to the flesh. In other words, we regard no one any longer from a simply worldly perspective. Paul says in effect, Philemon, we no longer see Onesimus as a general nuisance, though he was. We no longer see him as a lawbreaker, though he was. We no longer see him as a runaway, though he was. We no longer see him as a thief, though he was. But let him who stole, what? Steal no longer. So in light of this letter, Paul says, we no no longer see Onesimus the way we used to, nor does Onesimus view Philemon the way he used to. In fear having disdain for his master. The reason being that both Onesimus, the slave, and Philemon, the wealthy owner of the slave, have both been made new in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're brothers in Christ now. They just don't know it at this point. So on the basis of that glorious eternal truth, Paul is able to make his appeal in the writing of this letter. And now what I want to focus on in verses 17 to 25 is that there are four imperatives for us to look into. Four. Number one, he says this. Verse 17, accept this man. Accept Onesimus. Notice he says, verse 17, if you then regard me a what? A partner. A partner. This is tied back to verse 6, to fellowship. The fellowship, the koinonia, your faith, that it may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Our partnership is deep, for we share the faith, we share trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So because of our shared faith, my beloved brother, accept this man. Accept him on my behalf. In verse 13, Onesimus is said to have fulfilled the role of Philemon to Paul, whom I I wish to keep him with me, 
so that on your behalf he might minister to me. He served me just as you would because he's a changed man. In verse 12, I've sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. He's so useful now, I'll send him back to you and he'll serve as though I were there serving. Now, Onesimus, his name means useful or profitable. So there's a play on words here, verse 11. Who formerly was what? Useless. But now is useful both to you and to me. I was good for nothing before God graciously awakened me. I was good for nothing before God gave me spiritual life. I was a rebel on the run from God of no kingdom value. But once the grace of God, once the eyes of the glorious Savior sought me out, found me, I wasn't looking for him. He was looking for me. And if he looks for you, he finds you. And if he finds you because he looks for you, he's going to transform you. And that's what he's done. He's taken a useless, wretched sinner and has recreated a sinner, and has granted him and given him, providing for him a new nature, making them useful for the kingdom by grace. It's only by grace. That's what he's done here. Since I cannot be there at this time, accept him, Philemon, just as you would me. Now, this seems easy. It seems straightforward, this command. But it's important that we understand this relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. There's been a great breakdown in this relationship. A deep and significant breakdown. Onesimus has deeply offended his benevolent master. Philemon has every right to be offended. He has the right to show him no encouragement upon his return. Man who stole from him a man who departed. He's probably given great responsibility. He probably, perhaps, was the overseer of his estate. Deeply offended. Have you ever been deeply offended by someone? Has anyone ever dreadfully wronged you? Emotionally? Financially? I got taken for a load of money a few years ago. A load. But by God's grace, I was able to forgive that man. A man who professed Christ. I thought I was reconciled at first, but because I was waking up in the middle of the night with bitterness and resentment in my heart, losing sleep, sweating, and wanting to put my hands of fellowship around his throat, <laughs> extend the right hand of fellowship, I knew I hadn't forgiven him. Everyone is awake. Amen. <laughs> but God revealed to me my bitterness. He revealed to me my resentment. And I was able truly by the grace of God to forgive him. People have lied to your face. Have you forgiven them from your heart? Is there a brother or sister in the faith? One who professes Christ that has sinned against you or you against them, have you been reconciled from the heart? 
Or have you allowed time to cover a multitude of sins? It's one thing to allow love to cover a multitude of sins. It's like throwing a blanket over someone's sin. It's just because of the love of Christ, you just throw a blanket on it. It's not that you don't address it. You just throw a gracious blanket upon it. But you see, throwing a blanket of time over a multitude of sins is different. Because when you throw a blanket over it and you don't discuss it or you don't even mention it, perhaps for a number of years, you begin to convince yourself that you've dealt with it. But in reality, you haven't. Because you're the one that wakes up with bitterness in your heart. Bitterness remembers details and it plays it over and over and over and over again in your mind. And you stir up these imaginary conversations or arguments against this person to attack them. That's a sign that there is yet to be forgiveness. There is no reconciliation yet. It hasn't been dealt with. There's bitterness. There's hostility. There's anger. There's even hatred. These things are all connected to murder, Jesus said. They're not the prisoner. You are. There are people who have bitterness and resentment against people who are six feet under. And they suffer today. They're in a prison of despair. But you see, Christ enables you the grace to forgive. Where he orders us to forgive, where he orders us to extend the hand of reconciliation, he also provides the grace to do so. So we're called to accept one another with the same level of acceptance that we've received from the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. Accept this brother, he said. So not only is such forgiveness, reconciliation, and acceptance difficult, especially when you've been wronged like this, it, my friends, is impossible in one's own strength. It's impossible. Apart from the empowering grace of God, you won't be able to be reconciled. But this is how the grace of God, this is how people can be actually reconciled and have love for one another to those who've wronged them. Is there anyone in your life that you're unprepared to accept? Is there anyone in your life who is a Christian, a brother or sister, you are unprepared to accept as you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? This is a heart check for all of us. Remaining unreconciled to a brother or sister, refusing to forgive them from your heart. You see, it's important that we understand that the extent that we're willing to remain in that kind of condition to that state of mind, not willing to be reconciled, it reveals that we've actually minimized our offense towards God and maximized their offense towards us. We minimize our offense toward Almighty God, who've been forgiven so much. Talking about believers here. So Paul says, accept Onesimus. Notice, he continues. Secondly, verses 17 and 18. Accept him and then charge his wrong to my account. If, if, Philemon, Paul says, if you consider me a partner, and he does, amen, if he has wronged you, if Onesimus has wronged you, and he has, if he owes you anything, and he does, no doubt, charge it to me. Charge it to me. Think of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. 
On the road to Jericho, a man is overtaken. A man is robbed. A man is beaten. The man from Samaria comes in. Jews hated Samaritans. He comes in and he, he, he medicates this man. He puts ointment on this man, oil on this man. He wraps up this man's wounds and he puts him on his beast and he takes him to an inn. And he gives the innkeeper two denarii. I have to leave. If the charges exceed the two denarii, put it on my account. And I'll be back to pay it. So Onesimus has been of value to Paul here. Having been regenerated in Rome under the ministry of Paul, Paul wants to keep him there because he's useful now. But he sends him back. This is the right thing to do. He needs to go back. And in addition, he says, any wrong that he's done, any charge that he's accrued, charge anything he owes to my account. In other words, Paul's being like who? Like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says when he sends the sinner, as it were, back to the Father. Saying, charge all of their indebtedness to me. Place it on my account. Not counting man's sins against them, but rather against the one and only begotten Son of God. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, Christ bears all of the punishment that sinners deserve. That's the gospel. Did you hear, beloved? That is the gospel. Friends, visitors, family, that's the gospel. The gospel is not, if you have issues in your life, come to Jesus because he takes care of issues and he wants to make you happy. He wants to give it to you all now. He wants to give you your best life now. The gospel is not how to fix your financial problems. That's not the gospel. It's not to have better relationships for your interpersonal well-being. That's not the gospel. Those are fruits of the gospel. Christ... He, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might be actually become the righteousness of God in him. So not only does God in Christ expiate our sins, removes them as far as the east is from the west, he also makes those that are his righteous. We receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So God, when he looks at you, he sees his son. That's the gospel. God's worked out plan of redemption historically in a moment of time culminating on Calvary's cross. For who? For those who are alienated from God by their sin. And God is alienated from us because of his wrath. It's a double alienation. Our sins alienate us from him. His wrath, his justice alienate him from us. We need a mediator, a provider. That's the role Paul plays here. Intercessor, mediator between Onesimus, a runaway slave, a thief, 
and a master and his wrath against his slave. So God's alienated from us who are outside of Christ. Where his wrath is meted out against us, he must punish sin. The sinner outside of Christ is helpless. He will punish your sin. You will stand guilty before him. You're guilty now. You stand guilty, friends. Justice must be paid. That's eternal separation from God. That's hell. So if reconciliation between the sinner and God is going to happen, God must be able to look upon the sinner without displeasure, you see. While at the same time, the sinner must be able to look to God without fear. Fear of his wrath. Question. How on earth can that happen? How is it that sinners can possibly stand before God without fear of incurring his wrath? And how might a perfectly holy God look upon us sinners without any displeasure whatsoever? I've already answered that. The answer that the transaction has been accomplished through Jesus Christ where his death and God's wrath are turned away. Because of his death, his wrath is turned away, canceling our sin and granting us his righteousness. Because when Christ was on that cross, all of the sins of those who will come to believe was imputed to Christ. It was placed upon him. He became sin. And in return, for those who are his elect, would receive his very righteousness. It's the great exchange. And it's the great exchange, beloved, that lies in the heart of the doctrine of reconciliation. And that's the doctrine in view. You see, it's when the wonder of this glorious doctrine, when the wonder of this great exchange truly grabs the Christian and owns the Christian is when their minds and their hearts are radically changed. That's when you can be reconciled to those who have sinned against you. Because we've been reconciled to God through Christ. This is what happened to Paul. Verse 19, Paul is saying here, look, Here's my IOU. My IOU. I'm writing this notice with my own hand. And the law of Rome required that any promissory note had to be written by the hand of the one that was covering the promise. So here, as this letter's being penned, Paul likely takes the pen from his secretary and he writes with his own hand. I, Paul, writing with my own hand, promise to repay any debt that's been incurred or in any way that he's wronged you any way he's wronged you anything he's taken i will repay it put it on my account this is what jesus christ provided on the cross a glorious picture of the atonement the atonement paul is speaking about the truth of substitutionary satisfaction the sacrifice of jesus christ on the behalf of a certain people. Now, when we speak about substitutionary atonement, we're limited to two schools of thought. It's very important that we understand this. Number one is the school of thought that leads to universalism. Meaning Christ died for every single individual that has ever been conceived on this earth. 
which means he died trying to save all people. If Christ came and shed his blood for all people without exception, that means that Jesus went to Calvary attempting to save all. And if Jesus came and efficaciously, meaning effectively, atoned for the sins of all people without exception, in other words, providing an effective means or measure to save all, then we must embrace universalism. Telling us that all will be saved. Or, we must believe in particularism, in a particular atonement, in an atonement that is definite. In other words, it's meant for a particular people. In other words, it's meant for his elect. Does the Bible teach election? Yes. It therefore must be limited to them. Everyone he substituted himself for, everyone he atoned for, guaranteed they will be saved. So therefore, the work of Christ on Calvary was 100% successful. 100% successful. Well, some will respond, well, I believe that his death was for everyone, but we have to do our part. We have to do our part. If he died for all without exception, it's up to us to engage. It's up to us to do this synergistic work that it's part God and it's part us and we have to engage by believing. And if you believe that, that it's synergistic, it's part God and part us, then Christ's death is absolutely insufficient to save anybody. Because if it's unless spiritually dead sinners somehow act in synergistic cooperation with God, no one can be saved. What if no one would have chosen to accept Jesus? Let's just say for a moment. Who did he die for? Nobody. Nobody. You see, that kind of thinking completely dishonors the greatness of Christ's sacrifice. It dishonors the Lord, period. Everyone he came to die for will come to saving faith. To believe in universalism is to believe that he evidently died for some that he could not save. That's not the case. Or he intended to save some, but not everyone is going to be saved. Tended to save everyone, but not all is going to be saved. In other words, the Godhead is up there frustrated. The Trinity is frustrated that all that he aimed and purposed to do has failed. Is that the case? No. You see, my dear Christian brother, my dear Christian sister, if you believe that, then we're talking about two totally different views of God. So are we talking about a God who's completely sovereign over all things, including salvation? Do you believe he's sovereign in all things, including salvation? Or are we talking about a partially sovereign God who's capable of much, he's capable of a great deal, but he cannot accomplish his intent to save those for whom Christ came to die? 
Universal atonement is repudiated in Scripture. The author of universal atonement is not Pelagius. It's not Jacob Arminius. It's Satan. What did Satan say in the garden in Genesis 3 verse 4? When God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. What did Satan say? Surely you will not die. You will not die. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. It takes a supernatural work of God to save sinners. You know, a friend used to evangelize when he was a young Christian. He's grown in his doctrinal understanding. He used to go out in public. He still does, but he was out in public. He was evangelizing in a park or wherever he was. And he said to some stranger, Jesus died for your sin. He loves you and died for your sins. To which this atheist responded, no, he didn't. He died for people who believe in him. Hello. (laughs) Hello. Wow. That drove him to study, didn't it, brother? You who are in here right now, I know where you are. (laughs) John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world without distinction, not without exception. The gospel goes out to Jew and Gentile alike. What do the Jews think? The gospel's for them. It comes to the Jews. It comes to the Gentiles. It goes out to all. And out of that all, his elect will be effectually called, efficaciously called. They will be drawn irresistibly. He will grant them faith to believe. How was Abraham saved? By the atonement of Jesus Christ. What about his contemporaries who were in hell at the time? Were their sins atoned for? No, they were in hell. Abraham's sins were atoned for. He believed. He was considered righteous because of Christ. So when Paul says here, I will repay it, he speaks in a figurative sense about the ultimate substitutionary satisfaction that Jesus Christ rendered for his elect. Well, why evangelize then, right? Because although God works in spite of us, He does not need us, we as believers become a means to His end. He, according to His sovereign purposes, uses the heralding of the gospel to reconcile sinners to Himself. So we preach to who? To all. Who in this neighborhood as you walk around are God's elect? The people that are unsaved at this point. You have no idea. I have no idea. So we just preach the gospel to everybody. Amen? Come on. That's what we do. And those that are his elect, whether you plant the seed or whether you water that seed, only God can bring forth the harvest and in his perfect, sovereign timing, he will cause them to be born again. He'll regenerate their soul. So Paul continues in verse 19. Almost humorously here. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. Now, by not mentioning it, he mentions it. He knows exactly what he's doing. You see, he never expects to have to pay the debt that he's willing to pay. Why? 
Because he, Christ ultimately paid for the debt to be able to reconcile sinners to him as well as to one another. He knows here that Philemon understands that which he owes to Paul is his very life. So this verse makes clear for us that God used Paul to bring not only Onesimus to faith, but also Philemon in the past through his ministry, probably in Ephesus. Paul says, in effect, I'm sure that I can appeal to you on this basis, and yes, I will pay his debt. However, however, I am certain that you recall you owe your entire existence to me, how under God's sovereign plan and rule, his gift of your eternal destiny is tied to me. God used me as a vessel to what? Preach the gospel of reconciliation the message of reconciliation. And as I preached it, and as I taught, the Holy Spirit worked in a dynamic, supernatural way and birthed life into you. So in a sense, he's saying, I led you to the Lord Jesus Christ. I pastored your soul. So here now is your opportunity to repay me. Welcome him. Charge it to me. Accept him. Thirdly, verse 20. Refresh my heart. Refresh my heart. Yes, brother, he says. Brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. As though he's saying, look, as I've said what I've said, yes, my dear brother, gathering all the facts that have gone before you here now, what I would like is some benefit from you now, brother. Onesimus is now useful, formally useless. Christ made him useful. He's coming back to you. And by the way, I would like you to give me some benefit as I appeal to you as my brother. As a partner, verse 17. Notice. Partner. Verse 20. A brother. This is family. This is the language of family. You see, being in Christ is not a private matter. Personal, yes. Private, no. Well, my relationship with Jesus is private. I just keep it to myself. Wrong. Personal, yes. Private, no. When someone is brought to faith in Jesus Christ, they're brought into the very family of God. We're brothers and sisters. Did you know that? I know you know that. That's why you call me brother. Call you brother, call you sister. Now, brothers and sisters are different. Some are odd. <laughs> some are quiet. Some are overtly loud. Some are socially inept. Some are skinny. Some are heavy. Some are dark. Some are light. Some are funny. Some are bland. But we're all one family, amen? We're brothers and sisters. So super, superficial friendships within the body of Christ are far less than what God expects of us. You see, Paul and Philemon are deeply connected relationally. They share something in common. And it's a blood-bought relationship through the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
They're bound by the union of Jesus Christ and His glorious gospel. So Paul says, as you have done, as you've done so well in refreshing the saints, back in verse 7, remember? You refresh the saints. I pray to you because you do this in the ministry, because you do this in the church that meets in your home, now I want you to refresh me as well. Refresh my heart in Christ. These words are not filler for Paul. (laughs) These are vital truths. Paul's appeal is on account of the fact that Philemon, as well as Onesimus, the slave, they're both in Christ now. They're united in Christ. They're both covered by the blood. So reconciliation like this is possible. And that which God, as I said, commands, he also provides and enables you to do that which he commands by his grace. 2 Corinthians 5 again, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anyone, who's anyone? Former thieves, former robbers, former uh, uh, murderers. I did years of prison ministry. I faced men who were doing double life, who there is no doubt in my mind in spending time with them that they have been born again of the Spirit, bearing fruit in the ministry in prison. They need to spend the rest of their life in prison. That's where they belong. But they're freed in Christ. Anyone who is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Anyone. Onesimus is in Christ, being sent back to another who's in Christ, Philemon. Is Philemon any more deserving of eternity with Christ than Onesimus is? No. Anyone who's in Christ. He's our righteousness. So Paul asks on account of Christ's work that Philemon refresh his heart in the Lord. You know, every benefit that you will ever experience as Christians comes to you in Christ. Every benefit, beloved. All of the camaraderie and companionship that we experience with our lost neighbors, our lost family members, the joyous celebration and the festivities that we've experienced over these past days during Christmas here, now in New Year's, all of those relationships, that shared joy is shared in a very futile sense. It's very temporal. Why? Because one out of one person's dies. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. So all such camaraderie comes to an end at death, you see. That's why we preach the gospel to those that are dying. Those of us in Christ share something that's eternal because of our union. Blood-bought saints, beloved. We share a camaraderie now, yes, but we have a brotherhood that's eternal, a family that will exist forever, worshiping and glorifying our glorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're eternal brothers and sisters. Verse 21. Having confidence in your obedience, he says, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. No manipulative tactics here. I'm just laying it down. And I know, I have confidence 
is Paul has been praying for Philemon in the church at his home. Philemon, no doubt, in the church in his home have been praying for Paul and his ministry. So through the mysterious work of God and his sovereign purposes, their prayers are not only inspired, but are also answered by Almighty God. And through it all, we see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven and on earth as it is in heaven. And through that ministry and through those that sovereign work of God and saints praying, here was the life of a sinner transformed. Onesimus. A former thief. And then finally, verse 22. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging. Prepare a room for me. For I hope that through your prayers, notice, through your prayers, I will be given to you. Now, perhaps in a gentle sense, he's saying, look, I'm going to come check up on you. I'm going to come to see if you exercise grace like this to your newfound brother. And then there's a greeting here in verses 23 and 24. He sends greetings from those who are his fellow workers. Now, think about this. Paul had a very unique, dynamic role in time and in service. The Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul realized he was no one-man show. Guys who are in ministry and become a one-man show are operating in very dangerous, turbulent waters. Bad place to be. There's many of them, by the way. Paul, being uniquely used by God, also recognizes that he's simply part of the team. And every member of that team is important. Same, as, same holds true here. You have servants in the other rooms there wiping the noses of your kids right now. Seriously. Cleaning up their spit, changing their diapers. They are serving. They're part of this team. They're people who come here and they clean the bathrooms during the week. They're part of the team. They clean the toilet. They clean these rooms. It's clean in here when we join together because of their service to the body. They're part of the team. So, he mentions those he serves with. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. Now, Demas's name is here, is a warning. Because later, by the time Paul pens 2 Timothy, Demas has departed. He's forsaken Paul. He's gone off. He's fallen in love with that which is outside of Christ, this present world. So Demas is a warning to all of us who ever grow presumptuous as a Christian. Begin to think that we can do it on our own. Think that we no longer need to rely on the power and the enabling of God the Holy Spirit. We're in desperate need. We're saved by grace and it's in grace for which we stand every day. We need His grace, beloved. Never become presumptuous. Never presume upon God. We need God's grace to keep us steadfast. Amen? So verse 25, he concludes with the word grace. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Your here is plural. The, uh, mo- the majority of the letter is your. Um, he uses the word your um, personal to Philemon. But here he says, I'm praying that the church meets in Philemon's home, that church, that it might be marked by the grace of God. God's people. So again, Paul's asking Philemon to perform a superhuman task. True, heartfelt reconciliation. This is impossible. He's asking him to do something that is not at all natural for us to do. And at the same time, asking Onesimus, this runaway slave, to do something that he would normally be afraid to do. Face his master. So both parties in this reconciliation have only one hope. And what is it? It's the grace of God in Christ Jesus. God's grace enabling one to return and say what? I'm sorry, I've sinned against you. Please what? Forgive me. Enabling, God's grace again, enabling Onesimus to say what? I receive you, my beloved brother. I forgive you. I accept you. Just as Christ, just as God in Christ has accepted me. You know, I know there's people in the church, I don't know who you are, probably right here in this fellowship, married couples. They come to church together, They live together, but their hearts are not together at all. They're not one. And the reason is is that you're alienated from one another on on the account of sin. There's been an offense, perhaps something from the past. There's bitterness, there's unforgiveness, resentment, perhaps even hatred. But yet, we show up for the show. And again, beloved, if you're in Christ, if that's you, if you're single, you're not even married, but there's this resentment you have for someone else. There's another brother. Perhaps he's sitting on the other end of the room here, or a sister. And there's something there. There's some sin that is causing you to resent this individual. God commands us to make it right. He commands us to be reconciled to one another. And again, that which He commands, He provides for. Lean on and trust in Him. Trust in the grace of God. That will enable you to forgive. And if you're the offending party, it will enable you to say, first of all, to repent. To say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Face the music. Face that person. Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go make yourself what? Right with your brother. Because we can. We're enabled to be reconciled to one another because we ourselves have been reconciled to God through Christ. Christ suffered. Christ died to to provide surety 
for his elect. That's why. Proverbs 11, verse 5, He who is surety for a stranger will what? Will suffer. Will suffer. Surety, one who's become legally liable for a debt. That's what Christ has become for us. And he suffered for it. Jesus is surety for his people. Passing on to us the righteousness and the ability to be reconciled. Not only with him, but now with one another. Amen? If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, you're at war with God and He's at war with you. And like the Apostle Paul, I beg you on behalf, I beg you on behalf, I beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. You've heard the gospel. Turn from yourself, turn from your sin, embrace Jesus Christ, repent and believe in what? The gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. The glorious good news of reconciliation between God and man. If you have any questions, you can see me at the door. Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you for the glorious picture of reconciliation through the life of Philemon and Onesimus, through the mediating work of Paul there, ultimately pointing to you, the one true mediator that reconciles lost sinners back to the Father through the finished work of the Son on behalf of the lost, wretched sinners like myself. Thank you for providing us life. Thank you for granting us the faith to believe. Thank you for granting us repentance. Bless your church, Lord, your dear people this year. I pray that there will be true reconciliation where there is resentment and perhaps bitterness and unforgiveness, that your grace would abound in and through the lives of all those that make up this body and other believers that we have contact with. May there be reconciliation where there's resistance, that your grace may abound, that enables your people to understand more greatly the work of our sovereign God in Christ Jesus, our Savior, that enables us to function rightly and righteously for your glory and the good of the body as a testimony to the world. We pray for more grace, grace upon grace. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.